Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And you guys, it's been a minute, but today I'm going to pass over the mic to Britt to tell you an episode and to tell you an episode on kind of a surprise day. This isn't a regular scheduled episode. We wanted to drop it in your feed as a surprise because this month is actually Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. And we couldn't find, you know, a, a story that really represented this in like a normal crime junkie format that's like 30, 40 minutes long. But we are so passionate about this cause and we think it's so important for young people to hear that we wanted to do this extra mini episode for you. Yeah. So the story we have for you today goes back to an all too common problem, intimate partner violence. And we've talked about it before, like when we talked about Michelle Schroeder and Anna-Marie Rintala. We've seen how domestic violence isn't limited by the age or race or gender of the people in the relationships. It can happen to anyone, anywhere, at any time. And if you didn't know before, Crime Junkies, you deserve safe, loving relationships. As a lot of you know, I fell into an incredibly loving, caring relationship when I was a teen, but not everyone is so lucky to discover that, especially at such a young age. And we want to tell you a story that highlights just how important this issue is. We're going up north to Alaska to meet a young woman who was on the very cusp of the rest of her life when dating violence turned to murder and stole her entire future away from her. This is Brianna Moore's story. just sparkles. She's a bright, happy young woman living in her hometown of Anchorage, Alaska. And gotta love her. Most people call her Brie because it just fits her personality better. And as a Brit, I get that. And her personality just draws people to her, but her kindness really keeps them close. And she's not afraid to be a goofball. And one of her favorite things to do was to cook at her family's home and do this amazing Julia Child's impression, which <laughs> I think is just adorable. Yeah. She's the youngest of three girls and is incredibly close to her sisters, Brandy and Brooke, as well as to her parents, Butch and Cindy. And girl after her own heart, she loves animals, has a pet chameleon, volunteers at animal rescues, and one day just comes home with a bulldog puppy that she names Edmund. And <laughs> it's the only way to do it. Like, you can't ask your parents. <laughs> right. You just, I mean, once it's there, they can't say no. And she is born for Alaska. She loves being outside. She's a huge adventurer. And she's not afraid of getting dirty and loves to go dirt biking and fishing. Just being out on the water brings her so much joy. And she actually wanted to become a doctor. She decides that she wants to work with people in addition to helping animals. Like, she considered a vet, but she thought, you know, I can volunteer at rescues and I can be a doctor. So she gets her start right after high school working full time at a local dentist office as an aide. And they didn't really want to hire her at first because she didn't have like any experience. But her boss, David, told the Alaska Dispatch that she kept coming back and asking for a job until finally they were like, you know what? Fine. <laughs> and 
that didn't surprise her parents at all because once Brie put her mind to something, she would never give up. And the job turned out to be a perfect fit. Brie takes to it really well and it gives her a really good introduction to, you know, a working career in a medical practice. So while Brie is working at the dentist's office, her boyfriend Josh Almeida is working as a mechanic. And Butch and Cindy have met Josh. They think he's a really nice guy. Plus, they know his family, so they're really comfortable with this relationship developing. Josh is a little bit older than Brie. They started dating when she was 19 and he was 21. According to the KTVA News that aired back in 2018, it is a whirlwind relationship from the start. But her parents really see no reason to worry about him. He seems perfectly charming. He's mature. He's a hard worker. He has a job. Plus, he and Bree seem to work really well together as a couple. You know, she adores him and he seems to adore her right back. I was just going to say, it's, it'd be kind of hard to like have a problem with like if you see your daughter being so happy. Exactly. And Bree's parents really don't see any red flags or anything that would make them worry about this relationship. So on the outside, everything is fine as Josh and Bree keep dating. And the longer they date, the more time they spend together, which, you know, is kind of natural. Oh, yeah. And Bree starts spending most of her time with Josh. She picks him up and drops him off at different places. And as a result, you know, she sees less and less of her friends and family. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's something about that young love, that like first love specifically, where you do, you like just fall into it fast. Like it's your first experience and and you think this is it. And I mean, I even remember like you kind of do just like your friends disappear, your whole world disappears and that person becomes your whole world. Yeah. And Ashley, you probably even have some vocal feelings about this because again, like I married my high school boyfriend and you were there for all of it. Yeah. You disappeared for five minutes. <laughs> right. So I can totally identify with like that falling in love can be a lot and you can get really in over your head super quickly. So Brie turns 20 on March 17th, 2014. And again, things are going really well at her job. She's a super hard worker. She's popular with her coworkers and everything seems to be moving in the right direction. And from what her parents can tell, she's incredibly happy. And then three months later, early on the morning of June 26th, Butch and Cindy get a knock on their front door. Two police officers are standing somberly outside their home, and they've come to deliver the worst news any parent can hear. Brianna has been killed. And at first, Cindy thinks that it's been a car accident. It's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. But the truth, as they're about to find out, is much, much darker. The Anchorage police tell Cindy and Butch that their daughter Brianna has been murdered, shot once in the head and killed instantly by her boyfriend Josh. This news sends Butch and Cindy into shock. They can't believe it. Murdered? They can't even begin to wrap their heads around anything they've been told. You know, Brie can't be dead. She just can't be gone. And they've never seen anything to indicate that Josh would even be capable of hurting her, let alone killing her. But as the reality sets in and the nightmare begins to unfold, they start to learn the truth. The man they thought loved their daughter was not at all what he had seemed. Bree's boyfriend, Josh, was a convicted felon who had a long and troubling criminal history by the time Bree was murdered in 2014, dating back years before they ever met. There's a rundown of Josh's criminal record for the Anchorage Daily News after he was arrested, and it is incredibly troubling. Almost from the time he turned 18 all the way up to that June of 2014, Josh had constantly been on the police radar. 
starting in February of 2011 when he was arrested for trying to run someone over with a truck and driving under the influence with a blood alcohol level of 0.171%. And Ashley, do you know what the legal limit is? So it's it's 0.08, right? Right. So his blood alcohol level was over twice the legal limit. And on top of that, they found a handgun on him when he was arrested. And there's more. In November of 2011, Josh was convicted of disorderly conduct for assaulting his own mother. And less than a year later, he went to a party, got drunk before throwing a woman on the ground. The hosts of the party were obviously shaken and asked him to leave. And he did, but he stole one of their trucks on the way out. And a lot of Josh's arrests involve drugs, alcohol, guns, or even a combination of all three. So major warning signs that he was not a healthy young man fit to be in any sort of romantic relationship. But the most troubling part was yet to come because Butch and Cindy Moore later learned in court Josh had more history with the law because in 2013, he was put on trial for four charges relating to an assault of his former girlfriend. So do we learn anything else about this other girlfriend? Like, what happened to her? Okay, so according to court records, Josh was actually violent towards multiple romantic partners before he ever met Brianna. But he only went on trial for domestic assault against this one girl after he allegedly beat the daylights out of her. And this was the person he dated right before he met Bree. Her name is blurred out in the records that I saw, and I don't know how she'd feel about her name being public, so I'm going to preserve her privacy by calling her Kay. And according to court records, after a night of drinking, Josh picked Kay up off the bed, threw her to the ground. She hit the doorframe when she landed, and Mm. when that happened, he then grabbed her by the hair, ripping out a huge chunk of it in the process and dragging her to the living room. Once he got there, Josh held Kay down and kept punching her in the head before grabbing a mirror off the wall and hitting her in the rib cage with it. Oh my God. He then put his knees on her shoulders to keep her in place so he could keep punching her. Oh my gosh. And at some point during all this, Josh even fired a gun and shot both Kay's house and car. And she finally managed to escape and ran to Josh's parents for help. Well, and and I assume they called the police, right? Um, I wouldn't say that they really helped her. Oh, like, no. they gave her a pair of pants so she had something to wear. What? And then they went to clean up the crime scene. What? I know. Trust me, I know. And not only did they clean up the house and all the blood and the gun and the shell casings, but they also hid Josh's gun and then took Josh home. Kay eventually got to her parents, and her dad was the one who ended up calling the police. And Josh's dad, Philip, was eventually questioned by the police hours later, but he lied about cleaning up the gun and the shell casings. And I'm honestly shocked that Phil and Shannon Almeida, Josh's parents, were never charged with evidence tampering, especially considering this was far from Josh's first violent offense. Instead, the Almeidas got total immunity from the state and didn't testify at Josh's trial due to their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. But yeah, they both admitted they cleaned up the blood, the gun, and the shell casings at the crime scene. And Josh wound up getting acquitted in November of 2013. You're kidding. I know. And get this, no one told Butch or Cindy or Bree any of this history. Not a word. The charges don't come to Butch and Cindy's attention until they see Josh in court for his bail hearing on June 28th, right after Bree's murder. Well, I kind of understand. Like, I mean, I guess I don't understand. I've never been to Alaska. How small of a town is this? Would there be somebody who would even 
tell them? Or, I mean, to me, they're just meeting this guy for the first time. Like, how would they know? I agree. But again, like, Bree's parents had met Josh's parents. He, they'd met the family. Mm. You would think that if you love someone and you want your child to be happy, you would want to give them a heads up or something. I don't know. It's. I mean, not from parents who covered up for their son. I mean, I, it's unfortunate, but unfortunately not surprising. Right. And the Moors are just totally stunned because this goes against everything that they thought they knew about the man their daughter was so devoted to. And there was a report in USA Today in 2019 that Josh was actually on probation at the time of Bree's murder. And he'd been ordered to stay away from guns and alcohol and drugs as part of the probation. And again, Bree's parents were completely in the dark about this. They had no idea that Josh had any kind of record, no idea that Josh's parents were taking him to anger management classes and AA meetings multiple times a day to comply with probation. And in fact, the night Bree was murdered, Josh had just graduated from a court-ordered anger management class. Oh, my goodness. So the Moors learn the truth about Josh. They learn about his parents in action. And they learn, too, that the night that Bree was shot in Josh's house, Josh's mom waited two hours to call the police. What? Yeah. Why? So on the night Bree was murdered, Josh's mom was awoken by her son screaming. And when she went downstairs to check to make sure everything was all right, she found Bree dead of a single gunshot wound to the head. And instead of calling the police right away, she hid the gun in the dishwasher. Again, tampering with a crime scene after her son committed a violent act. So she didn't even hear the gunshot. It was was her son that woke her up? Yeah. And once Shannon Almeida finally called 911 and the police arrived at their home, Josh first told the officers at the scene that he had nothing to do with Bree's death. According to Josh... He and Bree had been drinking down in the basement of his parents' house, and Josh said he left her to go to the bathroom and brush his teeth, get ready for bed, and he just heard this loud bang and ran back out into the bedroom to find Bree dead. So he's saying, he's trying to tell everyone that she killed herself. Exactly. No. And there's even a probable cause statement from one of the officers on the scene who right away saw that the evidence was completely inconsistent with death by suicide. Like, Bree had been shot through her forearms as if she lifted her arms to protect (gasps) herself. And Josh is arrested on the spot and charged with second-degree murder. The toxicology reports confirmed that Bree had absolutely no drugs or alcohol in her system at the time of her death. Okay, but what I don't understand is you talked about how violent Josh could be in his past. It is so hard for me to believe that absolutely no one had a clue that Bree was being hurt. Like... I I get her parents kind of being in the dark. And even if they didn't know, like, did anyone in her life see anything like friends, coworkers, like a random person at the dentist's office? Like, I mean, I've known you and Justin through the years. And if I saw something between you two, like you and I are close enough, I would notice and like would absolutely say something to someone, even if it was to Brie or her parents or other friends to just be like, is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing? Yeah. And actually, it didn't go unnoticed. Butch talked to some of Bree's co-workers after she was killed, and what he learned shocked him. More than once, Bree came into work with a black eye, and one time she came in looking battered and acting like super, super out of it, really disoriented, and actually went and threw up in the bathroom sink. And it sounds a lot like a concussion symptom, right? Yeah. And like, obviously, I'm not a doctor, but... Vomiting and confusion are right there in the list of symptoms of traumatic brain injuries. So Bree's co-workers saw major, major red flags and signs of abuse. But instead of saying anything to Bree or 
talking to her parents, they just decided not to get involved. Oh, no. And as Butch and Cindy learn in the weeks and months after Bree is murdered, Bree's colleagues aren't the only ones who saw troubling signs. In fact, Butch talked to one of Bree's sisters and asked her, you know, why did Bree deactivate her Facebook page? And Bria told them that Josh said that she didn't need a Facebook anymore because she was with him now. So Josh was trying to control who she communicated with, which is a really, really common tactic with abusers, you know, to isolate victims, create dependence. But since Brandy and Brooke didn't know that at the time, they didn't think anything of it, not until it was too late. Yeah, I mean, that on its own... I don't even know that I would I would say something. I mean, it would be super weird to me, again, just because of all the things we know, all the episodes we've done. But without having the information like from the coworkers or knowing that she's, you know, coming in with black eyes, that you almost don't have all the puzzle pieces to put together. the Yeah, puzzle. it can seem innocent enough, but it, it kind of goes to show you that, like, these warning signs are there and they shouldn't be ignored. Right. And again, like. Bree's sisters are seeing a couple things, her co-workers are seeing a couple things, but they didn't know everything and they weren't seeing everything. Josh's parents, Philip and Shannon Almeida, did. And they did nothing to act on it. After Josh is sentenced, Butch files a wrongful death lawsuit against his parents, actually, to find out what happened to Bree and to develop evidence that Philip and Shannon Almeida committed felonies in connection with Bree's murder. He actually put together this video all about it. It's about 25 minutes long, and it is very intense. And we'll link to it on our website, but I want to go through a couple of things here that I thought were really interesting. So legal-minded crime junkies, you guys know, depositions are kind of like testifying in trial, but it's not during a trial. And you're held to the same responsibility of telling the truth, taking an oath, et cetera, et cetera. But what do Philip and Shannon do? They lie under oath. So I'm going to play you some audio from Philip's deposition in 2017 and just take a listen to what he says here. So at any time prior to that murder, did you ever learn from anyone that Joshua was in possession of a gun? Uh, specifically from anybody, no. Okay. You know, I mean, I don't even think Shannon even mentioned it. In terms of whether Josh had ever been in possession of any firearm, you had, I'm understanding that you had absolutely no idea that Joshua had any firearm up until the time that he killed Bree. Correct. And again, since you had, Sounds like up until the time of Bree's murder, you didn't have any indication that Joshua had ever owned a gun. So that wasn't on your radar, so to speak. Correct. Okay. Now, a little bit later in the same deposition, this happens. Earlier, I asked you whether or not you were aware that Joshua had any guns. And it was, I'm I'm 100% sure that your testimony was that the first time you were aware Josh had ever owned a gun was at the time that he murdered Bree. Do you recall that testimony? I think so. Okay. So now it sounds like you're telling me uh, you do remember an incident where where you called the police and turned in a gun. So after reading this, this reminded me of, of the fact your son had a gun. Fired in the okay. past. Yes. All right, all right. Up until just so I got it crystal clear. Up until now, Pardon? you didn't. Up until oh, now, up until now, just now, yes. when I showed you the statement by Joshua, you did not remember that your son had a gun that was taken away and which you voluntarily gave over to the police, correct? Okay. 
earlier, we've established, you told me, under oath, Joshua never had a gun, to my knowledge, until I learned that he killed Bree. That was the first time I knew that he had any access to a gun. Recall that? Okay. Is that true? Do you remember testifying to that? I think so. Okay. Okay, great. So, then I showed you this statement where Joshua is saying, I handed over, my mom found a Glock, and she turned it over to the police. After reading this statement, you are now testifying under oath that, oh yeah, I just previously forgot that Joshua had a gun before he killed Bree. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Okay. All right. Just slipped your mind the existence of early. And Ashley, I don't know if you're mad yet, but my blood is boiling. And here's Shannon again under the same oath in the same deposition. Well, at the time of the murder, how many guns were you aware that Joshua had owned over his lifetime? You had the one and you took that away. That was the only one I was, I didn't even know the one he used was his at the Millennium. So that was the only one I was aware of. Okay, so you... So... Let me get this straight. His mother knew that he had a gun before Bree was ever murdered. And she knows that he's used that gun when he assaulted another woman. And and we all just think it's like fine that he still has this. Right. And she's lying because, again, she says the only gun that she knows about is this gun that was used to kill Bree when there was another gun in Kay's assault a year earlier. So she's absolutely lying. And honestly, both of them are. And it's right there on the tape. And I watched this video and it made me sick to my stomach because there's Shannon Almeida sitting at this deposition from 2017, calm as can be, admitting that she never told Bree or her parents about any of Josh's issues with mental health or guns or prior domestic violence because, and I quote, she didn't believe that Josh assaulted Kay. Wait, what? She, she, cl- she cleaned it up. Right. How does she not believe that happened? I have no idea how she could sit there and say that knowing that Kay had been assaulted. She went to Shannon and Philip. They gave her a pair of pants. Shannon and Philip cleaned up the crime scene. There's literally nothing to deny happening. I mean, do you think she's just straight up lying in her deposition because she doesn't want to get in trouble? Or do you think she really has this twisted belief Like, she wants to believe her son's a good person, and she's kind of just in straight-up denial. I think there's a really good chance of that. Like, even when my kids do something silly and and break something in my house, I, I want to believe that's not in their nature. It's small, but you'd want your kids to be good. You want to be proud of them. I get that, and I get that Josh is not that for her, but lying under oath at a deposition about things that are such blatant lies... I cannot wrap my head around it. And to make matters worse, after securing evidence in this civil case to prove that Philip and Shannon both committed felonies in connection to Bree's murder, Butch drops the civil suit in order to move forward with having the Almedas prosecuted for the perjury that we just heard them commit. Except the state won't prosecute. You're kidding me. Yeah, Butch has presented multiple prosecutors in the state of Alaska with the video, and they've all said, 
Yeah, felonies have definitely been committed. And in many cases, they've wanted to move forward to hold Shannon and Philip Almeida accountable with the causation of homicide. Yet no charges have been filed to date. That's got to be so frustrating for Bree's parents. Yeah. And Butch is determined, though, and he has given the video to lawmakers all over the state. But despite letters from multiple Alaskan officials, nothing. There's just nothing on the books yet to prosecute the Almeidas. And I think that's a question that we're going to be asking for a really long time. And I hope the Alaskan public asks their elected officials, too. The culture of silence and inaction around domestic violence is deadly everywhere. But in Alaska, as the Moore family learns, the problems run much, much deeper than they could even begin to imagine. So according to USA Today, 59% of adult women in Alaska have experienced intimate partner violence, sexual violence, or both. And among Indigenous Alaskan women, that number balloons to a staggering 84% who experience violence during their lives, as adults or children or both. 84% is not an okay number. Any number is bad. 84% is unacceptable. And Alaska was actually named the deadliest state in the country for women, with a rate of 3.4 homicides per 100,000 people, which is over three times the national average. And the reported rapes in Alaska are two and a half times the national average. And we know rape is chronically underreported. I'm sure the real number is even higher. And when Bree's parents find these statistics out, they are horrified. Cindy said in 2018 about how she and Butch saw a thing on TV just a few months after Bree was murdered, talking about the rates of violence against women in Alaska and how they were just totally shocked because they had no idea any of this was happening in their state let alone in their own backyard. And they're obviously still grieving. Honestly, as a parent, I don't see that grieving process of losing a child could ever stop. But in the midst of all of their pain and all of their grief, Butch and Cindy get curious. Because if a girl like Brianna, who no one would ever think could get entangled in an abusive relationship, let alone could wind up dead at the hands of an intimate partner, then other women could too. And the numbers say these young women are already dying at alarming rates. And the Moors want to know what's being done to prevent this. So the first thing they do is educate themselves about the reality of dating violence among young people. And I learned that almost 7% of adolescents killed between 2003 and 2016 were killed by dating partners. And 90% of those victims were female, like Brie. Once Cindy and Butch start getting deeper into the numbers, the harder it becomes for them to just stand by and do nothing. And the what-if game is always dangerous, but they can't help but ask themselves, what if Brie had known about the signs of an abusive relationship? What if she had been educated about warning signs and red flags? What if they had been better educated? Would she still be alive today? And with these questions in their minds, the Moors decide to learn everything they can. Since there's so much they didn't know about teen dating violence until it was too late, it stands to reason that other people don't know about it either, right? Right. So Butch and Cindy make it their mission to educate others as they educate themselves. And they decide the best way to spread this information is through schools. So they start at a local level and work with their representatives to draft some laws that would make teen dating violence education 
mandatory in Alaskan schools. That way, kids would learn to recognize the warning signs in their own relationships, as well as learn what to do if they see their friends in violent situations, and get an idea of the resources available to them if they themselves are being hurt. The Alaskan state legislator was already considering making it mandatory for schools to teach kids about sexual assault under a piece of legislation called Aaron's Law. And thanks to Butch and Cindy's activism, HB44, better known as the Alaska Safe Children's Act, passed in 2015. And it includes a provision informally known as Bree's Law and Aaron's Law. And that provision ensures students in grades 7 through 12 learn teen dating violence prevention education on how to recognize domestic violence and also where to turn if they're experiencing it. Bree's Law fits right in with the Moore's mission of prevention through education. And above all, they want to teach kids how to break the stigma, break the silence, and save lives in the process. And Butch made a great analogy about how if you are out with friends and, okay, Ashley, let's say you and I are out to dinner and I start choking on my food. What would you do? The Heimlich? Call 911? I don't know. (laughs) You would try to save me at least, right? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. Exactly. Like you wouldn't think twice about trying to help me or act like it was none of your business because you'd know how to help me. And the people who knew Brie was being hurt, like the co-workers who saw her bruises, they kept silent partly because they didn't know what to do in the situation. Brie's parents want to stop that from happening ever again. As Butch puts it, don't be afraid to save someone's life. While Butch and Cindy are educating themselves and figuring out how to best educate others, Josh's trial looms large. As a parent, I can't think of many things worse than having to face that. But the Moors are spared that heartache when Josh accepts a plea deal and pleads guilty to second-degree murder on July 30th, 2015, about six weeks after the Alaska Safe Children's Act passes. The plea agreement carries the stipulation of open sentencing, so it's up to the judge to determine how long Josh will spend in prison, anywhere from 10 to 99 years. And though they're spared the agony of a trial, the Moors are determined to see justice done all the way to the end. Both Butch and Cindy testify at Josh's sentencing, and KTVA News said... To hear Cindy talk about the daughter she lost and the life Bree lived to the fullest was just heartbreaking. And Butch testified about the danger Josh poses to the next woman he would date should he ever date again. And perhaps the most moving thing of all is Bree's older siblings, Brandy and Brooke, tell the court that they brought Brianna with them and present a bag holding their sister's ashes. It's all that they have left of her. (sighs) And it's just so heartbreaking and so moving and the judge agrees and Josh was sentenced to 75 years in prison it eases a small portion of the Moore's grief but they don't yet realize that their work with state and local lawmakers is just beginning when the Alaska Safe Children's Act becomes law in 2015 Butch and Cindy Moore don't consider their job done Armed with Brianna's memory, they take their messages to schools all over the state, sharing Bree's story and putting a recognizable face on the epidemic of teen dating violence. They make a website, breezelaw.org, and print posters directing teens who need help to call the National Teen Dating Violence Prevention Hotline at loveisrespect.org, distributing thousands of copies all over Alaska with the same message Butch said earlier, don't be afraid to save someone's life. They also don't stop lobbying state government. Although a section of Alaska's Safe Children's Act is already informally known as Bree's Law, 
That title is really just a nickname and has no legal standing. The Moors want to make it official to ensure Bree's legacy is memorialized in legislation designed to save the lives of other young women like her. While some lawmakers in Alaska object to naming the law after a specific person at the risk of kind of narrowing its focus to a single case instead of the broader Alaskan population, Cindy points out that You know, we have the Amber Alert system as an example of a recognizable name boosting awareness of an issue. And together, she and Butch keep fighting. Finally, on February 14th, 2018, Valentine's Day, the Alaskan House of Representatives unanimously votes to rename the House Bill 214 section of the Alaska Safe Children's Act, Bree's Law. The U.S. Senate is obviously a little bit busy right now, but Bree's Law is actually due to come back before the U.S. government to be discussed as a national law sometime this year in 2020. So you mentioned that they're doing this in schools as well. Do they have like any way to like measure if the the program is working within schools? So far, the numbers suggest, yeah. There are some really interesting stats from the Alaska Youth Risk Behavior Survey done in 2017. And get this, according to the survey, in 2015, 9.5% of teens in grades 9 through 12 reported experiencing physical dating violence. And a little over 10% reported that they'd experienced sexual dating violence. And two years later, in 2017, that has gone down to 7.3% reporting physical dating violence and 5.5% reporting sexual dating violence. So it's gone down by nearly half. So that's fewer kids being hurt and more kids having the tools they need to look out for themselves and their friends. So if they see signs like Bree's peers did, they know what to do. And while Brianna Moore died way too soon, her name lives on. Bree's Law works to make sure other bright lights get their chances to shine away from the threat of teen dating violence. And again, every single person listening, that includes you. If you've got questions about your relationship or you think someone you know might be in an unsafe dating situation, you can visit loveisrespect.org for more information. They've got a quick exit button if you need to get off the website in a hurry, or you can call them at 1-866-331-9474 or text loveis, that's L-O-V-E-I-S, all one word, to 22522. And for more information on teen dating violence in Alaska, you can visit loveisrespect.org, breezelaw.org, and the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center at aknwrc.org. As always, you can find all that information as well as our sources on our website. And we will also be linking the video there where you can watch the Almeida's deposition for yourself. That's crimejunkiepodcast.com. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. And we'll be back with our regular scheduled programming next Monday. <laughs>